podcast uh, with the coach, Brendan Sir. Uh, my guest today is a dear friend, a uh, long-time acquaintance, uh, and someone who I cherish the week we spend together every year at UVA, uh, Tony Bennett. Welcome to the podcast, Tony. Thanks, Brendan. It's always good to be with you. But you know, I, I look forward uh, every June when you and I get together for a week up at UVA, and uh, the best part of that week for me, uh, I'm there to teach NBA players how to learn, to have an interest in coaching, you know, to kind of get a quick, you know, five-day course in what has taken us years and years to try to work on. Uh, and, uh, and you know, we've had some really neat success with Kevin Ollie coming through that program and uh, Luke Walton now future coach of the Lakers and Amy Adoka from the Spurs. And, you know, we keep getting more and more, but there's so many talented guys that really want to share in that position. You were once in that position as an NBA player, and then you decided to go. Take us first on that path of when you transition from player to coach. Uh, first, the why, and then why and how you did it. Yeah, for sure, Brendan. I first, I think it's invaluable what you do with the NBA Top 100 camp, and I think Andre Iguodala was one of your when he yes. you you did it next year as the MVP in the finals. Well, he was you get current players and guys that have retired, but it really gives them a a, a great crash course on hey, this is reality. This is how you prepare a a film session, a scouting report, and adjustments in games. I think it's a wonderful experience for you know these guys that are thinking of coaching. So I love that, but for me, um, I grew up in a coaching family. My father was, um, you know, a very successful coach, and and I actually played for him. My sister was the head coach at Indiana. My uncle was uh, he's won a couple national championships and um, at the Division three level at Stevens Point. But I swore off coaching. I've you know said that many times. It's the last thing I wanted to do. I thought I'd have a long, you know, ten, twelve year NBA career, and then I'd just do something else. But I did not want to coach because. I observed it in my life. I said too much of a roller coaster ride, and I never really appreciated it for what it was. But then I got injured, and then the team, I was, this was after my NBA career overseas, said, well, why don't you just kind of help us out and be a player coach? Well, then I did that, and I really enjoyed the part of being involved in the game. I don't think it's as good as playing, but it is the next best thing from a competitive standpoint. And then you know, the relational side of things. It has to be both. It can't just be only competition or only relationship. You have to enjoy both. And I was really bit by the bug. And then when I came back from overseas, I knew my dad was getting close to retiring at Wisconsin. And I said, Dad, let me just volunteer and help you guys out. And I know you're getting close. And, well, that first year I did it, he had a great run and took Wisconsin to the Final Four. So I basically said, wow, this is a pretty good experience. I like this. I'll, I'll do this every year. <laughs> then I was, then I was <laughs> not realizing the, that it's a little more of a process than just going to the Final Four in your first year. <laughs> you know, when, when uh, you know, and what an advantage, you know, your dad is uh, such a treasure in our profession and someone that he's influenced. And I think that's the key word. Uh, one of the greatest things that a coach can do is impact and influence uh, young people. And I think that's one of the real whys of what we do. He had an amazing influence over your family, but the people, the coaches that he's touched, uh, his defensive concepts are really worldwide. Uh, 
how does that make you feel that all of a sudden you know your dad? You, you always look at your dad and say, yeah, he's special. But then when you see the people that he's touched around the world of basketball, you must really be proud. Oh, yeah. When I hear, you know, the Pat Riley's or people come up and say, no, I studied your father's philosophies and yeah. incorporated so many things. But I think the thing that was most valuable for me um, now as a coach and being under him, and I think what has drawn so many to him is he always took programs that were really at the bottom of the barrel. When I played for him at Green Bay, it just had become a Division One. Even when he went to Wisconsin, before he got there, they had only been to one NCAA tournament in 50 years. You know, and yeah. so he gets there, and then he came out of retirement after he took them to the Final Four. He came out to Washington State. They had only won about five Pac-10 games in like three years combined. And I, I think – I watched him have to rebuild. And I think when you're in a process, which most of us are, either when you get jobs or you get in situations, you get in spots where you've got to figure out, okay, this program, we've got to either stop the free fall. We've got to figure out how do we build it so we can become relevant, at least first competitive and maybe successful. And, and it just – I saw his patience. I saw how he would stay true to his vision and uh, how, how he'd simplify things to – when you're trying to rebuild – you get your ears pinned back so many times, and I think it it really strips it down or for, strips it down for you to this is what matters, this is what we got to get good at, and you kind of forget all the other stuff until you can figure it out. And I, I watched that process three times, once as a player, twice as an assistant, and that, unless you've seen it, um, that was the most valuable thing for me as a coach. And I think that's why people were drawn to him. They said, okay, this guy's had a rebuild. Probably doesn't get the most talent. How does he do it? How does he compete and get his programs up there? So I I think that's that's really relevant. Talk about uh, on both sides of the ball, uh, you know, your teams, I think, are most well-known for their execution. How does that happen, uh, you know? Well, yeah, I, th- I think it's efficiency. Again, I think, you know, what now in a league like the ACC, you, you play against such talent. You know, what, what Carolina and Duke, and obviously with the addition then of Syracuse, Louisville, Notre Dame, wow. Pitt, that have come into our league. The, the other ones, you you figure out quick, you're not always going to be the most physically gifted, talented team. Now, we've got talented players, but how can we collectively? Like, that's the whole thing that coaches try to figure out. How can we touch greatness? And and my dad always talks about it, and it's, he said, it's rarely can you do it individually. It's got to be in concert with others. And that's what you're always getting to. And that's a harder thing in today's society to get, you know, a group of young men to come together and, really have to sacrifice, have to give, um, but when they do and they touch it, boy, is it special. And I think that that is so important. And, then, and that's I know that's a little more philosophical, but that's the key on both sides of the ball. It really is defensively and offensively, how you, how you work together, how you share the ball, how you help each other. And um, there has to be a, a sacrificial kind of mindset in playing, which – goes against a little bit of what kind of is poured into these guys' minds, but there's still freedom to be good individually. And I think that's what every coach is really moving towards or trying to get to. My classroom uh, for the NBA players is your team room at UVA. Um, and up above your locker room, you have your, for lack of your core values. Is that fair yep. to say? Okay. Correct. Uh, talk about those five core values because I think everyone says culture 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 you know and and everyone says you got to have culture but it's not as easy as just saying let's have it how do you get it yeah what does it mean yeah we 
Yeah, we call those our, our five pillars, and just there's so many pillars at UVA because I think the Thomas Jefferson was the architect and the founder, so we just call them our five pillars. And, and again, I think you have to have some wooden hat as pyramid of success. I think whoever yep. it is, you know, when you start, there's, there's got to be some things that are your foundational truths, your cornerstones, as you mentioned, Brendan, that that are really important that are intangibles, or my dad would call them non-negotiables. And, you know, again, they almost touch on what I just mentioned. They're For us, they're, they're so important. They're actually um, – they're biblical principles. It's a unique story. My father probably established mm-hmm. them 35 years ago. And, um, you know, I asked him, I said, well, how did you come up with these? He said, well – he was a man of faith. He said somehow he wanted his faith to play out in how he coached. And so he said he went and studied the Bible, and he came up with what he thought were the five best principles that would make a great basketball team or a great player. And wow. they're kind of counter to what society or culture would suggest, but they're humility, they're, uh, passion, unity, servanthood, and thankfulness. And, you know, just I won't go into every one, but sure. the humility one, and I think you'd understand it, you know, know who you are. Don't think too highly of yourself. Don't think too lowly of yourself. Have a true identity and know what you hang your hat on as a team, as a player, and know who you're not, know who you are. And I think when you understand that, that's one of the greatest strengths, you know, of a, a real sober, pure mind that this is who we are. And when you get away from that, that's when you get in trouble as a team. So that's just yep. one example of what humility is. And I think, um, you know, our players understand that. You and I, uh, a few weeks ago, saw each other at a couple of AAU events. And uh, that culture of what those kids are out there doing in this spring, we love that they're playing ball. We love that, you know, they're getting great exercise. They're trying to – but it is almost the antithesis of what we're trying to do with our own teams, correct, would you say? Yeah, I think, you know – Brandon, I think there are some really good situations where you see some teams, how hard they're playing and competing, they're going sure. to a high level. And I think there's some good good guys and good things that are going on. And, yep, and then there's some things where, you know, kids are trying to get the exposure and show, and, you yep. know, it turns into a little more glorified, you know, you know and one tour. So yep. you see things that's hard to evaluate as coaches. But, yeah, no, you're, I, I would agree. In but but I, I didn't I, – and I, I, I misworded. I did not mean that the coaching's bad or anything like that. I just meant uh, that the kids, they're there to play. Uh, practice is not part of an AAU experience because the kids literally are getting together for the games that weekend, et cetera. Yep. And we know that in building any team – uh, it's the practice. The games are kind of the fun part. The practice right. is where the process really happens. That's really what I was. Uh, and I yeah. find that with the kids that we work with in the summer, uh, let's say a top 100, uh, they, they really don't want to, you know, they, they just are there to play and to be ranked. They don't understand, uh, you know, how how do we get to that point. And I think Steph Curry I think in a way indirectly is really going to help hopefully that process of how hard he's working at improving. Yeah. Thoughts on staff? Uh, I um, It's funny. I played with his father with the Charlotte Hornets with Dell and yeah. Steph was, you know, six or seven years old coming around the locker room and, you know, just this little guy floating around and who, who knew? <laughs> you know what I mean? He's like, like this exactly. And, and actually nobody knew in high school or even in college except, uh, coach, you know, coach did at Davidson. Um, you know, Bob understood how good he was, and um, but it's amazing because he, you talk about mastering 
his trade. And I was just at the ACC spring meetings, and um, I was talking with Coach Beheim, Jim Beheim, the Syracuse coach, and he was talking, you know, he's involved with Coach K at the USA basketball stuff. And he said, interestingly, when Steph came to those trials many years ago, he said he was, he was good, but he said he was, he was weaker. And he said he wasn't one of the best players. You could just see it. But he said his improvement, his evolution as a player, how he's worked at his game after college in the NBA, developed his strength, developed his, his touch, his shot, even though he was at a, such an elite level. He said it's amazing from – even at that time, maybe in the last three to four years. So I think that's what you're getting at. And there's no question, you, the the process, the work, the development, um, honing your skills, your craft, same thing with coaching. Uh, you got to study the game. It evolves. We're always learning. We're always adjusting. He's changing the game. The NBA is changing the game. The, the spread offense, the four guards, um, or, you know, all those things you have to, you have to study trends and figure out how you're going to be effective in the game. It's interesting in watching the NBA game, having been in it for so many years, and now it's almost like a different sport. There's very few set plays that are being run. It's all flow concepts, positionless basketball, as you mentioned. Um, watching Portland last night, they're playing with four guards, you know, half of the game, three guards at the worst, and and they're really hard to guard, really hard to guard. Yeah. Uh do you study – and like a lot of my friends that are college coaches, they really only get a chance to watch the NBA for the most part during playoffs. Uh, do you watch the games? Do you study it and say, Here, let me look for some things of what I can incorporate into my team? Of course. Um, I, I love watching the playoffs, and that's – you know, I haven't played. I wasn't a great player. I played about 15 minutes a game. I was a backup point guard and um, only played for three years. But you don't, but you don't make ten, you don't make ten million now. It's 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah, I know how about that. Sometimes <laughs> changed. I I think about that a lot, but it's all right. Yeah. The good Lord's been all right to me. I'm in a good spot. But it's uh, absolutely, and I love the playoffs. That's when I guess playing. You know, the regular season's good, but it's a grind, you know, 82 games. Yeah. And you get to the playoffs, and everybody steps up. Look, I study that, um, and not a lot of guys. I think the college game is evolving more to it. Before, I didn't think people could make as many contested shots off the dribble. That's the one thing when I went to the NBA. I was amazed at how many shots guys would make when they were well guarded. It didn't matter how contested they were. they just rise up and shoot it. And you're seeing a little more of that in college. Now, I'll, I'll even watch the WNBA playoffs. I'll watch yep. because – Sometimes they have to manufacture shots for their, their players. Those coaches, they can't just go get buckets. That's unique in the NBA, the way guys can go get baskets. And that's maybe a little more like the high school and the college game. You have to figure out ways mm-hmm. to manufacture actions for your players than just say, hey, I'm going to spread it out and you go get one. Now, there's times certainly you do that. So I think you you take from everything, but you can also be – uh, um, lured into a false sense of, all right, well, we can do this, but when you got, you know, Curry or Clay Thompson, who I was fortunate enough to coach for a year, um, it's a little different. Yeah. They can do some things that some of the young guys haven't developed their game to yet. Uh, watching Terry Stotts uh, the last few games, uh, uh, who's a terrific coach, and uh, I know you noticed uh, he runs, you know, one of your main offenses, as uh, one of his things, which I I think is neat uh, in that, you know, we all borrow and, you know, share ideas from each other. And to see then 
the best players in the world executing a concept that you're teaching your guys. That's got to be uh, that's got to be cool. And one I'm sure that you point out to your players every now and then. Oh, I, I have, and I mentioned it to my staff. I said, I think they're you know doing some of the things <laughs> we do. And um, but yeah. I, I um, problem is like, dang games on so late. I'm I'm half time. I'm asleep by the time Portland is so late. And so I just that's what DVR is for. But no, I noticed that, and um, absolutely, I, I loved it that because. You know, you always wonder are the things you do that would be successful at that level, and and when you see some things that it's encouraging. And of course, you pick up a lot of stuff that um, that everybody does. Uh, what what are your feelings when you see a friend of yours, contemporaries of yours, like we mentioned, uh, you know, Billy Donovan, who you coached against in the NCAA tournament and stuff, and Billy and uh, Brad Stevens, another guy that's just a neat guy, and Freddie Hoiberg, guys like that that have come going from the college game to the pro game and it's amazing they're unscathed they like have survived and you know and they're doing well uh, first of all I'm happy for those college guys because there was that stigma college guys can't coach in the pros which we both know if you give them some good players they'll be fine but uh, thoughts on watching your friends Oh, I love it. I, you know, I got to work with Coach Donovan and Billy for uh, was one of his assistants for the under-19 world champs. So we got to spend, you know, a good month together. Yeah. That's the first time I got to really have extended time with him. And, you know, I saw why he was so good in that setting. And so much of it is there's so many good coaches at all levels that sometimes mm-hmm. just don't have the personnel or the situation to be successful. So I know that how important that is. And you know the NBA game as well as almost anybody, Brendan. So, you know, a lot of it has to do with opportunity situations, but to see um, the success of, of those guys um, and how well they're doing, I love it because it is good for the game. And I mean, look, I think they're they're wonderful coaches at all levels that put in the right sure. spot, they could do wonderful things. But to see Billy and Brad, I, those two guys, absolutely, and, and Fred, I, I just I love seeing that. And, um, you know, I, I think maybe there'll be more. Who knows? There's, the NBA goes in cycles and trends, but – yeah, it's good to see in this series that that Spurs Thunder series has been amazing, and you know to see so many shots these guys make. That's what I'm blown away with how many contested shots these guys make that are almost unguardable. That that's what I'm studying. Saying how do you guard this? What do you do? And there's times you do have to take your hat off to some of these players, but you still got to make it hard on them. You got to figure out ways. When you uh, when you see a guy like uh, uh, see some of the actions and some of the things that people. Look, and you say, okay, uh, this would work, that would work. What about from a defensive standpoint, uh, the things that you do at Virginia, uh, the way you guard ball screens, for instance, and things like that, do you ever say when you're watching all the pick and rolls, NBA seems like it's almost hmm. all pick and rolls now, yes. and uh, and you, I think your, your team guards college pick and rolls better than any team in the country. And so – how do you think would that work in the NBA the way you like to play? Yeah, you know it's an interesting, and that's where I enjoy watching the NBA. Cause, yeah, you know, offensively, I say, how do we guard some of these things? And it challenges yeah. your mind to think of new ways. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with personnel. I mean, I think mm-hmm. you know how you defend pick and rolls. You have to have guys that can do the things you want. I think some of the stuff absolutely would work, and then I think, of course, you'd have to have adjustments, and I think you have to have. A couple, you have to be good at what you do, but you guys have to have alternate ways. And uh, real interesting, Brendan, and I, I don't know how much detail you want to go, but I was watching. I haven't gotten to watch a lot of the games, but Atlanta was playing Cleveland. They were really having a hard time with that middle pick and roll cool. with Kevin Love. Screen separated. Where's but it? then in the fourth quarter, 
the last game, you know, they sort of changed. All of a sudden they started getting aggressive and doubling it and, and rotating. And I thought, at least in my limited knowledge, I thought it, it worked. It bothered them for a bit, and it, it took them out, and they had to do something different. And, you know, there's so many ways you do it, but it, it just was interesting to see, okay, that's what makes the NBA so interesting is how they, they have to adjust. They play against each other for so many games, and I thought that was really effective. And I said, well, that's something we would try. You know, sometimes they switch. Sometimes they, they show low show or whatever you got, you know, it's called. Mm-hmm. And then they get back. And I just I saw all of a sudden them make adjustments. That was more of a college move or something. And, and I saw it work. And I said, well, that's good. And, you know, everybody's icing and downing sidewalls. So you, you think about all those things. And the rules are a little different. So that comes into play as well. Sure. Uh, Lawrence Frank, I went out to the Clipper training camp uh, with Johnny Jones before the season just to see what Lawrence was doing with Doc and all those people. And uh, I think Lawrence is one of the smartest XNO guys in our business. And, and yeah. I asked him about Steph Curry, how do you defend him? And he just laughed, and he said, we have to have a minimum of four different coverages, <laughs> to your point. And he said, because if you just show, he'll do this. If you blitz him, he'll do this. If you switch, he'll – but he says we kind of constantly keep changing to try to at least make him a little off balance, maybe. maybe. Well, I got a question for you, Brennan. I, think the, I would think the viewers would love to hear this from you. See, I talk, my father loves the NBA. We talk all the time about it. He studies it. He's great. He, he says, you know, there's, the game is evolving. There's trends, and, you know, the yep. offense is usually ahead of the defense. You have to make adjustments, even in simple things. But – he talks to me all the time. You were with the Pistons when the Jordan mm-hmm. rules came about. So here yes. you've got a guy, and sometimes it's with Curry. Yep, it's ball screen stuff and the guys he used, but, and it's the spacing with Curry and these other guys in green. But it's also without, when, when there's no ball screen, when he just has the ball, how would the Jordan rules work, have worked with a, a Stephen Curry? What do you run at a guy? Do you get out of his hand or do they have too many? Like those things to me are fascinating. And my dad and I talk about that all the time. But you were there. It might have been your brainchild, for all I know. You're too humble to probably admit it. But, but these Jordan rules were significant. So what would it be with Curry, in your opinion? Well, uh, you know, the, the thing is uh, with Steph is uh, the Jordan rules work when the player uh, that you're going to double team is has the ball. And with Doug Collins coaching, he had the ball in his hands. So we knew where it was. So it's no different than the football blitzing a quarterback, let's say. Right. So – we just said that when he has the ball on the wing, the nearest guy at the top is going to run at him and make him pass the ball. If he's in the middle of the floor, we were going to influence him to the left, even though he could go either way, fine. Correct. And then we were going to just run at him from that side, and if he was on the right side, we were going to bring him to the middle. Any pick and rolls, we were going to blitz him. And the premise was just to get Michael to pass the ball because we knew he was unselfish, and he would pass the ball. And when we first did it, the guys on the team, even though they had competent shooters, they were so darn nervous the pressure on them to make shots was a little too great. Uh, right. When Phil Jackson came along and he created the spacing in the triangle, it really hurt us because he had guys to pass to. But only when Michael finally trusted his teammates that they were going to make shots. The difference, yeah. I think, in Steph is he's got shooters all surrounding him, and those guys yeah. have no conscience. Clay, uh, <laughs> yeah. Her- those guys, they shoot waking up in the morning. So, uh, <laughs> and, and there's not a lot of Steph plays, and the guy takes you so far away from the basket. Yeah. That guy will yeah. shoot the ball from 30 feet. Uh, right. You know, 
It, it, it's a it's an interesting one. I'm glad I don't have to go through it. To be <laughs> well, when yeah. you come to Virginia, you and I are going to sit down. We're, we're talking about that because I know you got But I think I think in the college game, I think it can be very effective versus a star player. Let me just say yeah. that. If a team has a star player and it's a perimeter player, I think it can be very effective because they're not used to seeing that kind of defense. If right. that makes sense, you know. Uh, yeah, so no, that that will be something in June that we go over in our coursework, which leads me to uh, you and I, what we enjoy so much about being together every June is the idea of learning from each other. Uh, on both of our past past to mastery in coaching, uh, our friends at Nike have a great saying in that there is no finish line for them in their product mm-hmm. development, and I love that saying. And, uh, and I think that's to where we are in our coaching uh, journey. Uh, there is no finish line. Uh, you know, I've been doing this. I'm like, this might going to be my 43rd year of coaching. And, wow. and you know, but I, I feel like I wish I was 20 years younger because I'm just starting to get it now. I'm starting to understand <laughs> the things. That in the last 10 years, I think I, I know so much more. I can't believe I cheated those kids with the Pistons years ago. Because I don't know anything compared to what I know now. Where where do you find or where do you go for your mastery? You know, you've had a month with Billy yeah. back with that team. That's a natural yep. one. How does it's, things uh, like this happen for you? It's interesting. You know, here at, at Virginia, it's because Thomas Jefferson, I mentioned, found at the university. They don't call you a freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. You're known when you're a freshman, you're a first year. You're a second year, you're a third year, fourth year. And I always wonder, well, what is that, mm. that, you know, Jeffersonian thing? And it, it goes along with what you're saying. The reason why it was explained to me is they said Thomas Jefferson never believed that you were a senior in learning. You're, you're only on a continual journey. You're a third year, you're a fourth year, you're an eighth year, ninth year. Like, you never can yeah. say, I'm a senior. I've figured it out. And I like that concept. It's pretty much what you're saying. I do. You're through, yeah. you're through. It's just this journey of, this is what year I'm in. And, you know, again, if you, the game, as we said, there's trends in the game. You study it. You know, in college, 75 to 85% of the game, now is all ball sports. Now you have yes. four men and sometimes five men, you know, who can shoot from 24 feet, you know, the, the range. So yeah. it changes how you defend. It changes, again, offensively when you have more guys that can do things with the ball. It, it's just a different thing, so you have to study trends. You have to look at, we talked about the WNBA, the NBA, mm-hmm. study guys. I think that's why, you know, guys were so intrigued by my father because he took maybe less and he did things collectively that would contend with the best and, you know, things that fit you but that challenge you. So you're always watching, studying, learning things, talking to you. You know, great great scripture, Um as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And, and again, mm-hmm. I think that is this idea of, of figuring it out. And, you know, I, I think, but there's also the other side, and I don't mean to con- contradict myself, but, it, you know, it also says if, if, you, um, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for everything. So I think it's good to study. It's good to learn and figure it out. But there has to, there has to come a time to say, this is what I believe. This is our philosophy. This is what we're going to do. We're going to adjust. We're going to learn. But, you know, it can't be this, um, you know, all things to all people. It has to – I learned that early in my coaching career. I said, well, I watched my dad. He was too simple. He was man-to-man defense and a pretty much motion offense. Well, when I get a head job, I'm going to 
press. I'm going to have a continuity. I'm going to have a bunch of sets. I'm going to run zone. And we started doing yeah. practices, and I'm like, my God, we're not getting any good at any of these things. And I started stripping it down, saying, you know what? I understand why you got to do a few things really well with adjustments. And I think that's the older I that's get, true. the more yeah. simple I get, but I still study and learn, if that makes sense. Yeah, oh, no, when I doubt, when, uh, when I got the, the honor of coaching against Jerry Sloan for years in Utah, and, yeah. uh, you know, and, 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 uh, and uh, he was a fun guy and a simple man. And you'd go in the off season, uh, like this week at the Chicago pre-draft or combine. He would sit there in the bar at night and he would just tell you stories. And, and I'd say, <laughs> you know, I know every one of your plays, Jerry. I know every one of your plays. <laughs> oh, you're really smart. You know, all seven of them. And he said, that's all he had. He had seven plays. My friend Lawrence Frank had 132 plays when he was with the Nets years ago. And and every option and counter option, Flip Saunders, guys like that, they did everything. Sure. And But Jerry, he said uh, his whole thing was he established a culture of execution. And that they would execute. I thought it was brilliant, and it was so influential on what I'm doing, and I think what you're saying. And it's not about how much, it's how well. And I think that was really powerful, you know. But, uh, well, you know, I, I wonder about that. I don't mean to interrupt you, but he watched no. Vince Lombardi as a young, younger man, and he watched the Packers practice. And they'd run the wow. famous, you know, the Green Bay Packers sweep. And he said he'd just do it again, do it again. It was very simple, but the execution Lombardi demanded, and this is obviously, you know, people who follow football know Vince Lombardi. And I think that really influenced his philosophy, and it is that simplicity with execution at a high level, and, you know, just that's what you're talking about. The, uh, the I've had people tell me that they went and heard Lombardi at one of those coaching clinics that we like to go to, and he yep. did, like, his whole clinic on one play, the sweep. <laughs> that was it. And, like, they're going, like, awesome. how about some of the other stuff? No, that was it. You got one play. And that's what he did for two hours. And and I and I laughed about it, but I said, you know what, that's made a guy like that so special, you know. Right. But, hey, right. I, this has been so special for our listeners. And, uh, you know, and the, and the great thing about you are always so kind to share. Uh, you know, we have 7,500,000 coaches around the world that listen to our podcast, and we're honored by that. But Kevin Eastman and I, what we're trying to do is just share and uh, create this mastery of coaching with people that just want to get better. And uh, you're one of the great ones that really love sharing. And uh, and I can't wait to share from and learn from you when I come up in a month uh, to Virginia. So, Tony, thanks again for just being a great friend and uh, and a great person in, the, in this great game of basketball. And I know our listeners really appreciate it. Well, thanks to you and Kevin for um... – you know, be willing to share and, and help, you know, all of us coaches get better. And we really appreciate the service you guys are doing. So we'll look forward to seeing you, Brendan, and always good to be with you.